Welcome to the Ag Emerge podcast, brought to you by Ag Solutions Network. Your farming challenges are unique, so your practices should be too. We're here to share emerging ideas, build connections, and provoke conversation. Get ready to improve your soil, your crops, your livestock, and your family's livelihood. I'm your producer, Kim Chase. And I'm your host, Monty Bottens. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for joining us. Today, we welcome Dr. Jonathan Lundgren, founder and director of the Ecdysis Foundation and director and CEO of Blue Dasher Farm. Jonathan was one of our speakers at the very first Aggie Merge event, and his presentation was so powerful. Watching the work that he and his whole team are doing at Ecdysis and Blue Dasher Farm inspires us to continue to learn and understand the biodiversity necessary to nurture our land. In this episode of the podcast, Jonathan says, you know those etymology problems, those insect problems? The reason we don't solve them is because they're not entomology and insect problems. They're soil problems. Andy says, until we heal the soil, we're just going to continue to have that same problem after problem. Take a listen as he and Monty talk today about their research, discoveries, and passion to solve those problems. Welcome, everyone, to this episode of the Ag Emerge podcast. I'm blessed to be joined by Dr. Jonathan Lundgren from the great state of South Dakota. He said it is the best kept secret, so we're not going to tell anybody else about South Dakota. You don't want to go there because it's a great place to be. Anyway, Jonathan, welcome. I'm glad you could spend time with us today. Uh, always a pleasure to see you, friend. It's it's good to see you. Well, Jonathan was at our very first Ag Emerge conference in Monterey, California. Uh, like he said, several of his team members have been on the podcast, uh, and we've been able to talk about multiple issues regarding generative, regenerative agriculture and the importance of insects and biodiversity. So the, his and him and his entire team have contributed a lot to the body of knowledge for regenerative agriculture. But for those who may not have met Jonathan before or know of him, I'm going to give you a chance to tell your story from from the very beginning and, and kind of what has gotten you to where you are today and what, what fuels you, sir? Oh, geez. Uh, boy, uh, in a nutshell, um, gosh, what's my story? Let's see. Uh, I, I'm a scientist. Um, I, I, I was, I have my doctorate in, in the field of entomology. I was a bug guy for a very long time. Came to the realization that just studying insects doesn't solve insect problems. And, and we have to have a better appreciation of that whole system. And as we started to trip through that, uh, I worked for the USDA for a long time uh, as one of their scientists there. And it didn't, you know, it just didn't seem, I could, I, you know, we all have metrics of success, right? Those those little things that we use to say, okay, I'm a good farmer or I'm a good scientist, right? And uh, man, almost nobody had better stats than I had, and and so things were going just right as far as my career was concerned with USDA and within that whole space of of sort of organized science. Things weren't getting better, right? I mean, I could still drive from. South Dakota over to Minnesota where I grew up and visit the parents and I mean 
climates were changing still, pollution was rampant, the rural communities were disappearing. And, you know, the science I was generating was being generated for other scientists. It wasn't being generated to solve problems. My gosh, what would happen if we did science to solve problems? Don't you know, at the end of every research study, more it always says uh, more funding is needed for additional research. I mean, right. the, the, the purpose of research is not to solve anything, right? It's just to do more research. Well, it used to be, you know, and it could be and it can be. But as it's applied right now, uh, a good sexy problem is the best thing that ever happened because you get all kinds of grant money in order to study it. But anyways, I just decided, you know, things aren't getting better. Uh, the farmers were showing me that there was a different way. The beekeepers were showing me that the, the implications of the current system, uh, in case, you know, I hate to break it to the listeners, but insecticides kill bees. Uh, no matter what anybody says, Turns out insecticides kills bees. Unbelievable. Um, uh, <laughs> and so uh, I decided things needed to be done a little different. We needed an evolutionary scale change to our food system, not just incremental steps, but we needed something. Uh, uh, we needed an asteroid to hit this food system. And it is. It is. The collapse of our food system, as we know it, the industrialized food system, is happening before our very eyes right now. Um, but there's a better way. And the farmers have discovered this, and they're doing it without science. And so oftentimes they're doing things that scientists say can't be done. And so I quit and uh, pushed all of, uh, all of the chips onto the table. And we started a Dyson's Foundation in regenerative, uh, and, and Blue Dasher Farm, where I live with Christina and the family. And that changed everything. So we, we now, our metrics of success are how many acres have we changed? How many how many face-to-face -face contacts have we had with producers? How many relationships have we forged? Yes, peer-reviewed science is extremely important. Rigorous science is extremely important, but it has to be done differently. And the first step in that process for us was to realize that the scientists have to be farmers in order to connect with that problem. And so every day we have chores that the, the, the scientific staff here has to conduct here on, on Blue Dasher Farm and, and uh, and, and the impact that we've had over the last several years, uh, it defies all logic and explanation. So did you come from a farming family, Jonathan? No, no. Okay, so I, what, what was this like when you went from uh, your career with USDA ARS to, to becoming a farmer? What, what was that like, uh, that shift? And what are some of the things that surprised you? Uh, step one was uh, I had all the answers for everybody, right? I was a trained doctorate and therefore an expert in my field. And therefore, you know, I could I could explain all of the problems that people would be having and how to solve them and uh, put together a business plan for the farm. And that lasted, you know, I don't know, 
maybe a morning. I don't really, <laughs> I don't remember. Uh, but all of my preconceptions got blown out of the water and the realization of all of the different skill sets that we need in order to be a farmer and and how problems need to be solved. You know, so I wear two different hats, right? I, I mean, I, I have the farmer hat now and I have the scientist hat. And when confronted with the problem, the scientist says, okay, well, let's let's pick this apart, this problem apart so that we can optimize the solutions to this thing. And it'll require, you know, uh, looking at the at the data and conducting different experiments under different scenarios to see which is the optimal response. Meanwhile, the sheep just broke fence and I got to, you know, make make a decision now using the best information that I have in my hand at that moment. That's a different philosophy than what what I was what I had as a scientist. Um so, uh, yeah, made tons of mistakes, continue to make mistakes every day um, and learn from them. And we always try to fall forward, as my mom likes to say. She says, John, fall forward when you fall. And, well, it's, uh, it's amazing what you can uh, what you can do as a farmer with some duct tape, cable ties and a pair of pliers. You know, it, it's uh, the, the tools of the trade, let's say. Yeah. Um, so. I remember early on when we first met and one, one of the statistics that really stood out to me um, and we'll see if you, if you were a great teacher and I was a good student. Okay. Oh boy. For, for every one pest out there in a modern uh, field, you, you name, um, maybe let's go with row crop fields. There's 1700 beneficial insects. And when, when, when we spray an insecticide, we're uh, we might get the one, but we're we're nuking the other seventeen hundred. Do I have that ratio right? Did I remember correctly? Yeah, in terms of species, uh, uh, yeah, that I think is correct. Um, uh, and that's you know globally too, right? For every pest species, there's seventeen hundred species of insects we can't live without. We don't understand them. They well, don't often have names. I mean, we can't live without them. I mean, they're just bugs, right? Eh. Right. Yeah. Um... Well, that, well, that's our that's the problem. I think that we're facing as society right now is that we just don't understand why life and biodiversity is so important. We've got this, we've got these blinders on, you know, okay, if I've got a, if I've got a disease or if I've got a problem, and one of my animals is sick or something like that, we give them an antibiotic, you know, as quick as we can, right? Or if we have an insect problem or a, a disease problem on our crops, or we, we buy a product and we kill that one thing. But the implications, you know, entomology problems, you know, insect pest problems, they, the reason we don't solve them is because they're not entomology problems, they're soil problems. And until you heal that soil, you're just going to continue to have problem after problem after problem. So you got to get to the root, and that requires much different styles of thinking than what our current scientific infrastructure is, is well poised to address. So, so at this moment, what you're saying is you're living life as a recovering entomologist. A little bit, yeah, <laughs> yeah. We, uh, but that's interesting to think about that. And so, a couple couple questions I want to go on there is, I don't know if people know, but we are living in the largest extinction event on Earth at this moment. Okay, but it's not 
dinosaurs, you know, that we always think of extinction events and meteors. It's not, you know, something else, a, a mass flood or, or something that caused a, an extinction event. We're living in the middle of a huge insect extinction event, correct? Oh, describe, life on Earth. Describe the, the nature of this and just, just how massive it is. I, I don't think people can say that, but they're like, oh, well, that's interesting, and then go on and get their coffee. Right, right. Well, I mean, I think we can all remember what things were like on, on our farms when we were growing up, right? I mean, think of the barn swallows that used to fly around. Uh, think of the, think of the SDSU, uh, South Dakota State's you know, mascot as a jackrabbit. Hell, when's the last time I saw one of those? Hmm. It's been years. Years! Or think of the pheasants, um, you know, the bob, you know, the quail, right? The wildlife, the invertebrates. I mean, hell, when you drive your car, you'd have to clean your windshield constantly, wouldn't you, when you were growing up? Um, when's the last time you had to do that? Hmm. Uh, you know, we've lost 70% of the biomass of invertebrates over the last 30, 40 years. Science has shown this. Um, that's the food web that supports everything else including us and and without it but we're all living longer lives we're all living lives that are easier than ever before more technologically advanced than ever before so what's the big deal we all have plenty right. of it's yeah. it's not a problem what are you talking about well i i don't know that that's true anymore you know i think maybe we've we've peaked out technology has shown us what's possible but I don't know that it's made us any happier. I was talking with uh, my son. He's recently graduated from high school. And, and uh, I asked him, uh, what proportion of your of your friends and uh, the, your class, your graduated class, reads books? And he's like, mm, 10%. I'm like, uh, that sounds about right. And I asked him, uh, what proportion of your class is on antidepressants right now? He said 90%. Wow. 90% this next generation. As technology has replaced simple community interactions, connection with the natural world, connection within our community and our families. Are we better off? Is that wall, are, is, that, is that whole system falling down hmm. right now we uh in yeah, I'm, yeah i could go on so, no those are, we, those are great questions we all have to answer there's within every law of thermodynamics um there's a little nugget that they reserve for unpredictable events that tends to tear down highly organized systems into a steadier state, lower energy level equilibrium. They call it entropy. And, you know, the more that we try to control the system, right? The more that we build up the rigidity of that system, the more the natural world wants to pick it apart and bring it down lower to a steady state. And I think that that's what's happening in our food system. And a regenerative food system 
is one that is steady state that can be maintained because right now the current system is being maintained by greed and the farmers are the victims as far as I'm concerned. The Ag Emerge podcast is brought to you by Ag Solutions Network. The ASN team is hands-on, digging in and invested in regenerative agriculture. Along with the proper plant nutrition and biologicals to boost your soil microbiome, we provide the ideas and implementation guidance to support you on your soil health journey. So stop farming the same way and contact Ag Solutions Network today at asn.farm. That is a, a a great definition of regenerative. And I've always, you know, people talk about sustainable and that was the buzzword in the past. And it's like, there's no way we can keep doing what we've been doing for another thousand years. No. So it doesn't pass the thousand year test. You know, it don't even pass the hundred year test. It says nope. current production practices will run out of arable land in 80 years. But uh, it, that's a more for certain than uh, climate change being a problem in 80 years. And yet oh, it's, they're totally related, they were, aren't they? Yeah. yeah I get, well, yeah. Land use and, and climate interaction is the, uh, they're connected, you know. Oh, so, absolutely. <laughs> but it gives us a real opportunity. Doesn't I know. It? Yeah, that's true. All right. So one, one other detail, um, just to <laughs> make sure I remembered correctly, but, but there was another person um, who's, um, you know, JL is his initials. He also said that the amount of neonic uh, insecticide that is contained on one corn seed has the potential, doesn't doesn't mean it it does, but has the potential to kill up to uh, how many bees is that? By my estimates, it's about 164,000 bees, one seed. Times... On average, we're planting in the corn belt 34, 36,000 seeds per acre. Per acre. That's a lot of zeros behind that. That's like a half a, let's see, zero, zero, zero. That's a half a billion bees. Yeah, right. When you, when you go, when you start thinking that there's 95 million acres of corn. Yeah. Almost all of it's treated. Mm -hmm. Wonder where, what's happening to all the life, huh? Yeah, my calculator don't have enough. But then the other interesting thing is, is the persistence of this. And I, I find that interesting is one of the uh, studies that, that came out of South Dakota there is, uh, were you part of that where it was taken up into sunflowers five years after a treated seed had been planted on that farm and you found neonic in the sunflower at a deadly enough level? Yeah, it doesn't take a lot, right? It doesn't take right. a lot. And and. It's getting into organic farms. It's getting into the water. It's getting into the soil. It's getting into plants that have never been treated before. I had a friend call from Montana uh, about white-tailed deer finding genetic, or they were finding uh, jaw deformities in about 70% of their hunter-killed deer. And then the males, they had genital deformities. And so uh, together with a colleague up on campus, uh, at SDSU, John Jenks, we uh, had a graduate student, Elise Hughes-Berheim, and she did a wonderful study that will never, ever be repeated again, uh, where we administered neonics to white-tailed deer. And and it was uh, astounding what happened. Uh, increased mortality in the fawns. Uh, the females had disrupted... Uh, 
um, hormone levels, thyroid hormone levels. Uh, they were lethargic. Um, they smaller. Uh, all of these things, right, that contribute to what's happening out there in the natural world. And then we looked at hunter killed deer in in North Dakota. They had three times what we were able to experimentally generate in under controlled conditions. And you're just kind of like, oh my gosh, we got to connect the dots, don't we? Yep. So because of you, it's all your fault. Uh, we did go to uh, Neonic Free Seed. Um, How'd that go? About five years ago. It's It's gone just fine. Uh, and what's really interesting is the farms that we've recently acquired or rented. When I look at the, when I walk in the field and I see the the bugs in the field and, and realize I'm in outside of the Quad Cities in Illinois, so we get more rain and, and we have a little more uh, faster half-life degradation of the neonics so we can bounce back from it a little bit quicker, I believe. But you just notice a lot more life in the fields on the fields that we quit five or six years ago versus fields that have only been off for one or two years. Hmm. And the other interesting thing is, is at harvest, we see pheasants and grouse and quail and all kinds of birds now yeah. in the fields that have been off of it for six years, where the fields that we just started on, they're not there yet. And I find that really, really interesting. Now, is it scientific and proven and replicated and everything? No, but I am perfectly fine. Um, that is the not, basis not killing of killing stuff, right? So the basis, those observations that you're making right now on your farm are the basis of science, or the way it should have been conducted for the last, you know, hundred years. So knowing that, you started just a, a little tiny project, right? To, a little bit, just just to you know make a couple, pull us a couple samples here and there. And uh, you know, run some sweep nets and uh, call it good at the end of the day, right? Yeah, yeah, what's, yeah. What's it called here, uh, the Thousand Farms Initiative. Oh my goodness, Thousand Farms! Are you crazy? You can't. Do uh, uh, yes, I think I may be. Uh, but you know, there's a sense of urgency, and you know, there's somebody's got to do something. There's enough. There's enough pamphleteers out there talking about the problems, but not doing anything. And that's not our, in our, it's not in us at Ecdysis. So we, we decided we need bold action. We need to start filling this data void now, not later. Um, and we need to um, do it right. Recognize that the farmers are changing things right now and that they are developing these successful systems and that science can be used to help support that uh, in ways that it hasn't for a long, long time. Um, we currently are uh, hold the keys to the largest inventory of regenerative agriculture in existence. Um, we have an archive of the nation's agricultural soils housed in the attic of my pole shed in Eastern South Dakota on a regenerative farm a museum level quality uh, a biological collection of our food system that's fully digitized and is changing how we conduct bio inventories. Uh, we've visited and deployed teams out to almost 900 farms over the last two years. 
and done full systems inventories of these farms, looking at soils, water, microbial uh, species, um, invertebrates, uh, plants, birds, economics, management, the nutrient quality of each yield sample off of these things. And now we're trying to navigate how do we how do we start to describe these different systems and and does regenerative agriculture indeed deliver on the promises that it makes? So the problem is everybody's wanting a definition of regenerative agriculture. Yeah. You're on 900 farms or close to 900 farms of the thousand, you know, a little more to go, right? Mm -hmm. uh, and oh yeah and what i think that people who want a definition don't understand farming because what is optimum for my geography where i farm is not optimum for the geography where we work with customers and do crop consulting in indiana or in western kansas or in montana or in california those each one of those you're going to do different practices to do it and then the second thing is as soon as we create a definition like the organic standard we have now codified we have stopped progress that's it we've stopped progress and we've turned conventional organic sorry organic farmers but most of the diehard organics you know agree with me on this they get we've it turned, yeah. we've turned organic into conventional with substitute inputs yeah that's it and more tillage right so yeah I, you know, I think the definition needs to be continuous improvement. Yeah. Um, so, okay. So at the start of this, right. Uh, regenerative systems are unified by principles. And I, and I think that that's true. Okay. Mm -hmm. um, but I had to take a step back this year. So we've studied the continent's food system at this point, like intimately, like we've gotten our hands dirty and ever in, in these fields and, met the farmers and their families and on a scale that's never been done before. Mm -hmm. And that style of science, it, it provides an enlightenment <laughs> that would not be possible if I was just working in Eastern South Dakota on a particular problem. Mm -hmm. um, number one is I don't believe, and this is gonna, this is going to cause some controversy. Okay, I'm about you, to piss you, some people off. You have never done that before, John. Monty, I, I, no, I mean, this is going to be a first here. I know. And uh, I, uh, to attain what is possible in a regenerative system, two questions I think need to be answered affirmatively. Number one, do you grow food for your family and your community? Do you eat the food that you're creating that you're producing on your farm? Number two, have human feet touched every acre of your farm? And if you can't say yes to that, then I don't I think you can do better than a conventional industrialized model of agriculture, but I don't believe that you're going to attain the pinnacle of what a food system can in terms of environmental social outcomes. Um, and there's a lot to unpack in that. Those two statements, those, there's a lot there. Number one, we need a hell of a lot more farmers than we have right now. 
Number two, there's widespread cultural change that ends up needing to happen in order to attain those two questions for a lot of farmers. But at the end of the day, I think that that is the direction that our food system needs to go if it's going to be, if it's going to reach its lower energy stable state that entropy ultimately is dragging our our current food system down the down into but it sounds like to me you have to be a phd in order to go into uh go into farming if we're following your model now oh not a bit not a bit oh, okay. no. how are we going to get the more farmers how are we going how does that happen it's a great question um that happen? number one we have to start getting rid of the greed in our food system right that's what's produced this problem is land prices are completely out of control right now what are you paying for an acre of land in quad cities area right now okay so a piece of uh would have been um type prime crop prime, 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 prime ground just sold 80 acres had a had a wind lease on it for 13.9 oh it's actually a little bit off of the high it has come down oh. a little bit but you know the prime ground has been uh, batting for fifteen. I tried to buy a parcel across the road. It was going to go for nine thousand an acre. I'm like, how on earth do you afford that? Well, what who pays it? for that? But what drives it is the revenue that you can generate per acre. Well, the revenue. No, it isn't. Are you joking me? You're never in a million years going to pay off that piece of ground. Right, but I'm saying the revenue that that you can generate out of that is they look at two and a half percent so that'd be roughly 375 dollars an acre rent is what it takes to justify that price well 37 how do we get to 375 an acre rent well that's because we're raising 260 bushel corn and we're taking it times you know six dollars a bushel and we're paying off all the input providers to get those big numbers to pay 375 because if i don't pay 375 someone else will or someone want to pay 400 for it just yeah. to trade the dollars. But how do we get those high prices is because we have crop insurance that guarantees well, that we won't go backwards, that the taxpayers are funding half of the premium for and the farmers the, paying for the other half. And that's what the, perpetuates the system is the guaranteed income per acre. The farmers are totally trapped, Monty. Correct. On, because if you uh, don't take out insurance, you can't get your operating loan. That's right. You don't have an operating loan. You don't farm. They're farming for pennies on the acre. Mm -hmm. And you, you have to buy new equipment to offset the income that you have because that's, you know, that's your tax for thing. But when you buy the new equipment, you don't pay cash for it. You know, you take out a five-year, seven-year loan on it. Well, then you have to keep making those payments the next year. I was just talking, I was up in Brandon, Manitoba, talking with a farmer up there, and he's like, man, we had a bumper crop of canola this year. Oh, my God, it was amazing. It was like, finally, we're going to get ahead. This year, every input I put on that ground went up. You you have to drop a million dollars for a combine now. It's like these jackals, these vultures are like standing in the wings, just waiting for a farmer to almost eat by. Well, if you want to know what the nitrogen price is going to be, you take the corn price, divide by 10, and that's the price <laughs> per unit of nitrogen, and that's how it works. So corn goes up, inputs go up, corn goes down, inputs go down. It's a very calculated system if you really look at it. And it's supported by the industry. 
that's supporting the price controls and everything else. And the farmer is just a victim in this scenario. Um, well, how do you victim? There's a lot of willing participants. Yeah. yeah. I'll tell you, well, I'll tell you a funny story. And now this is going to get me in trouble in the hood. Okay. okay. Yeah. Oh, I'm, good. I'm, I'm driving by, I got a long-term uh, cover crop plot. It's a replicated plot and we've kept it in place now for 10 years and we're analyzing yield and soil health quality and all those. Were things. we on that ground? Uh, that you weren't on that ground. You're on it on another place. But um, anyway, this this is within the field where we're doing that kind of replicated work. Haney tests the whole works and uh, just not doing the bug sweeps and uh, uh, infiltration that you're doing. Anyway, I'm out there checking them. You know, we're putting in the plot. I'm checking everything, making sure it's lining up on the right AB lines and everything so we don't create bad data. So I'm leaving. I go right next door. Neighbors driving uh disc ripper oh. with his with his oh. son with his son in the buddy seat. Oh. So I'm like, ah, oh. he's oh. next generation. Yeah. And and I'm thinking we'd planted the same day this spring and everything and saw and it's just you can't miss what's going on out there, right? Yeah. So I drive down the road another couple miles, and sure enough, there's there's a person who um, works for uh, Precision Planning. And uh, Precision Planning is great at all the new technology they got to where you can put nitrogen on with your planter very efficiently indexed so you're not over-applying, right? You're, okay. you're not over-applying. But unfortunately, family doesn't have any of that on their equipment. And there they are putting on anhydrous ammonia. And the soil oh. temperature, well north of 55. And <laughs> it hasn't even been close to 50 yet. And they're just putting on gas as much as you can, you know, and I just, within two miles, I saw those two things. I'm just thinking, what are we doing? Yeah. Just, and, and they know better. Do you they see the soil better. blow? Do you see the soil blowing? Yes. And yeah. Do they? They? I don't know because you drive by ours and it's, it's clean. And then right on the fence line, there's dirt. And it's just, Ugh. anyway, it just, I'm not picking on them specifically. I'm just no, no. to point out the mentality. We've done this because we've always done it this way. And here we are teaching the next generation because, you know, spouse works at a tech thing, but the the dad doesn't, right? So right. we're just holding on to what we've always done. And it's just so frustrating. And the other night I went to drive down and look at some triticale we got planted deer have been eating it like mad you know it's there's 24 of them in the field because it's the oh my gosh you know, that's yeah. nothing else like it around it's the 120 acre food plot they just come there yeah. and my wife and i on the way there we drove by probably a couple dozen soybean fields 22 out of 24 of them had ammonia on already and are you like, kidding I, why I can't get off the habit it's, yeah no it's joke it's eat oh it's cheaper and yeah so you just put on a little more if you might lose it Mm. it's the moron mm. so how do we get over the moron approach and and changing this generational thing what have you seen in working with these farmers how have they done it how did they come to that decision point and how is what you're doing with the data supporting their decisions and helping others make those changes um you know it comes back down to what i had said earlier you know connecting with the natural world connecting with your family connecting with the community i think that those connections give support the farm insurance 
and 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 the vultures of industry aren't i mean they just can't compete with that um and so when so the way that we're uh, I'll I'll share a story first, and then and then we can talk a little bit more of, about. So you know the end result is that you know we've seen a test of these two systems. I mean we've got we will provide the data on it and all of this right because Thousands Farms is so broad. I mean we can see what's going on with uh, so with the industrialized system in Kansas. Oh, I'm sorry, Kansas farmers, but what's happened in Kansas is. Pretty it, prairie soil, and they tilled it for 150 years, and the aquifers dry, right? The Ogallala is almost gone. the 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 soils are beaten to hell. The rural communities are gone, right? That's the system. That's the system. I mean, it's in Illinois right now. I mean, if you want a crystal ball, head over to Kansas. All right. Yeah. Then we go to Vermont and the structure of Vermont is different, right? There's a lot of mountains and hills and stuff like that that stop you. I don't think their soils were probably as good as Kansas is when they started. They've been farming the same piece of ground for 250 years, 250 years. And you can sink your soil probe to the hilt in black soil because they've been using these regenerative practices for that long. The, the nature of the system was just such that it lent itself to regenerative practice, what we're calling now regenerative practices, right? Mm -hmm. The test of the system is there. And yes, there's differences between the two regions and stuff, but the outcomes are very clear. The only way that we are going to feed our, our society is with regenerative agriculture. The other one is burning itself out. So I, I am um I'm a very much a, a free market oriented fella, okay, I, and I I believe in empowering our customers to make a choice for our grass fed beef and you know chicken pork eggs and and I choose to grow non GMO and food value stuff and it's harder and all this stuff so I, I I'm all about the choice but you know the impact um of the other decisions is such there's so many externalized costs to the yeah. conventional system character. I'm kind of a hybrid in the middle, you know, I'm not, um, I'm still growing grains <laughs> and, and for some premium, but I'm not organic. I'm kind of in between. Um, you know, I, I have some profit impacts on what I do yield wise. Um, but it's a, it's a choice I decided to make myself. Okay. Or the market may choose to pay a little more for those value added traits, but where does that balance in your mind come in between the consumer choice, uh, farmer choice reward system versus regulations where, no, you can't use XYZ product or you can't do XYZ? Where, how, how do those two balance each other out? Well, it's a complicated question. So we've looked at the economics of regenerative versus conventional systems across North America at this point. And there's technically, you know, if you look at the averages and the air bars and stuff on all of these, the more regenerative practices that you implement, it doesn't affect the bottom line. You, you produce just as much yield, you produce just as much economics as a conventional system on average, right? 
What that means is that you're not losing money by going regenerative. Mm -hmm. But what was really interesting when you start teasing apart the data, and I think that it gets to maybe your question a little bit, you can tell me whether it's true or not. Um, the most profitable system in the highest yielding fields in every single system that we looked at was regenerative. But the problem was, is that the lowest yielding and the lowest economic returns were also regenerative. And I think that what that says is that there's other currencies that are being measured right now, not just economics. Why do people change? You know, um, maybe it's pride. Maybe it's uh, or not change, right? Maybe it's family. Maybe your kids are sick. Maybe you're not having, maybe you can't have kids right now because infertility rates are through the roof right now in our rural communities. Maybe it's being a good neighbor. And instead of putting the tile drain and sending all the water over to your neighbor's place, all that filthy water that you just created on your farm, and sending it down the, down the pike, maybe that's not such a good neighborly thing to do anymore. Um, and those other currencies might be what's driving this. And, you know, at the end of the day, you know, that greed, that economic currency shouldn't, that's, that's not how a system maintains itself over time. That's not the glue that binds a food system. It's, it's the sense of community. It's the sense of family. And, and we really need to reinstill that. Otherwise, our kids aren't going to want to stick around. And if you think about it from an ecologist standpoint, you know, we are always taught that, oh, it's competition between plants and, and, and those kind of things. But really, there's been some revolutionary research in the last 20 years showing that, oh, wait a minute, it's not this competition model like we were thinking. It is a community model. There's mm -hmm. resource sharing between species, between groups of species plants and, and species and, you know, the, the whole systems within a natural ecosystem. Symbiosis. Correct. And, and have, have our thought process just hasn't caught up to reality. Well, uh, I think it is whether, whether we're realizing it or not. So that's, that's, so evolution is a, sometimes it's a pretty nasty thing to watch, isn't it? And, and we're living through an, an evolutionary event right now. Um, the, the, the virus of greed, you know, it's just like with COVID, right? You know, it comes in like a lion and, and, and then after a while, the only way that it survives is by tempering itself. And right now we're seeing that um, with, you know, with, with our food system, that the realization that the, that the mining mentality and the exploitative mentality of farming had its day. Had and is the key. And I, I don't know if I, it's, it'll take a while for everyone to realize that, I think. Well, it's going to be painful to watch them realize it. But guess what? You know, they always ask when I talk, you know, what's it going to cost me to change, you know? Because, you know, I don't, I don't, I'm not against this whole regenerative thing. I just, you know, what's it going to cost me? 
And I think that that's the wrong question. You got to ask yourself, what's it going to cost you not to change? And uh, not all the farmers are going to be around at the end of this evolutionary event in our food system. But Ecdysis Foundation is going to be there to try to help those that are, are willing to listen. And uh, we want, we see a very strong and diversified food system at the end of it, where uh, where we remember what it is to functionally be human. Hmm. That's very, very interesting. So um, talk to us more about Ecdysis. And obviously the, the Thousand Farms Initiative is, is a big, big focus now. What else is going on and, and what things are you looking at in the future with Ecdysis? So... Uh, a thousand farms initiative we are working on thousands of farms across north america we're kind of at the peak of that project um i mean there's only so many cornfields that you need to show at regenerative works on right it, at, at some point deploying scientific teams from our from our farm here in south dakota it, it probably isn't going to be necessary anymore at that point so we're kind of at the peak right now. I, look, I view it as a bell curve of effort. And uh, and so as that starts to diminish, our goal is to start to develop citizens-based science um, where we, we send out kits of sampling materials that farmers can use to measure their own farms and empower themselves so they don't have to hire somebody else to do it or whatever. And at that point, then they can interface the data right into our databases and learn not only from their own farm, but also from hundreds, if not thousands of other farms around North America. At the same time that that citizens-based science is starting to increase, we're also looking at globalizing thousand farms because we can't just save North America's agriculture or show that regenerative ag works here. We actually have to show that it works many other places around the globe as well. And that is a, that's a tall order. Uh, turns out the world is a pretty varied place. And so what might work to, in North America may or may not work as far as gathering data and community um, elsewhere. So, I, I love your crowdsourcing idea there, a citizen scientist. I uh, the data that you'll get will exponentially increase for the for the costs that you have incurred for that. So, yep, brilliant, brilliant idea. How'd you come up with it, that? Life's not boring. It's certainly not dull. Um, it's you know it, it's it's in our ethos to try to empower the farmers and to realize that farmers are the leaders in this in this food system right now, not the scientists. That scientists. Are, are servants, and that's the way that it should have been all along. Um, and so the idea of taking what it is that we've learned and giving it to the farmers is uh, for free, of all things, um, is is kind of right in, in line step with, with everything else that we're doing. So mm -hmm. it's just making sure that that data is, is still useful to the scientific community so that we can still learn from it. Because there's caveats associated with citizen science projects like that. Right, right. Making sure it's it's done and everything correctly. So, um, all right. So looking, you know, you, you decide that. Uh, you think I'm crazy, Monty. Look I at that. You can see it in your eyes that you no, think this is no. nuts. 
hey, you're an entomologist, so you automatically <laughs> have a level of crazy. Okay, that that's all there is to it, right? <laughs> yeah, but uh, no, I don't think you're crazy at all. I want to know the extent of crazy uh, by the time you retire. What 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 do you want to know that you accomplished through through all the work that you and your teams have done? Um, we're going to be able twenty to... years or how, however long you plan to uh, pursue what you're doing. Um, we have a board. Uh, uh, it's a it's a cardboard box <laughs> that we passed around the staff, and we wrote down all of the things that you know brainstormed ideas of. And I think everybody should do this, right? They should all have their own like in, in the future. If we are successful, what does the future look like? What does our food system look like? And and it's one of the more inspirational things hung on our wall right now. And uh, it says things like, he, being an ecologist, it will be exciting instead of depressing. And uh, every every um, every food will have a story. Um, every plate has a story, and knowing that story, um, there will be a lot more farmers. You know those kinds of things. From a scientific standpoint, I mean, we'll be able to put hard numbers on exactly what kind of an impact. We're, at this point, it looks as though, and, and of course, we'll, the data is still coming in, um, we'll be able to offset all of our carbon emissions using our food system, increase biodiversity, reverse desertification, reduce or eliminate pollution associated with agriculture while improving the resilience of our rural communities and human health. And, and the quality and nutrient density of the foods that we're doing, along with that corresponding health improvement to society. Yep. That's right. Along with sure more a lot of problems. Other, yeah. Other than that, not much to it, I suppose. Yeah. But we, I mean, we've got a whole hard plan on, on watching it. I mean, we have GPS coordinates for every farm and we know exactly what it is that they've been doing. In 10 years, we can use satellite imagery to watch changes to the landscape associated with regenerative agriculture. So you're saying you're creeping on me. I got you. Yeah. I mean, yes. And um, <laughs> I'm going to stop there. <laughs> oh. <laughs> So, um, yeah, you're going to pull up some weird satellite images. The cattle just came <laughs> out of that field that you were in. So, uh, and they'll be a gear again this spring, but yeah. uh, no, I, uh, I, I really thank you for your ability to think not big, but huge and monstrously huge. Right. I, it's, it's amazing to me how you've, you, you discover something and then you just, you take it to the next ring of impact and then into the next ring you know you you've really not just kept yourself in 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 the one silo and, and you've built a team around you and and you have a voice um you know through documentaries and and, and through all of the interviews that you've done to get that message out there and uh man you, you you've just made an incredible impact uh, both on me personally as a farmer uh mm. and on the entire agricultural system. And I sure thank you for it. Wow. Uh, I thank you uh, because you are on the front lines 
and you're the one taking the guff at the coffee shop and you're the one that's actually risking things. So we need a lot more Monty Vatans out there. And uh, yeah, so uh, I think one we're in this together. <laughs> we need more people doing regenerative things. There we go. <laughs> but no, uh, anything else we should have gone over or covered while we well, we had a chance to chat today? I think we nailed it. Buttoned it up. Buttoned it up. So I think some baby steps I'm going to walk farmers through that they can do. And I think you can take a look and just do some simple things. I, you know, if you want to take some baby steps towards this, get some untreated seed planet see what it is because now is a great time to start the five-year half-life uh, degradation process in neonics mm -hmm. you can also look at incorporating cover crops increasing some diversity getting more growing things out there of greater diversity at more time to increase the the bugs that we've got to work with and support bird species and those kind of things eliminate disruptive tillage eliminating overflying nutrients really think do i need a fungicide I doubt that you do because yeah. those can have negative impacts on the soil food web, which impacts us. So there's lots of little things that you can do. And uh, I'm sure you can also reach out to Jonathan's team at Ecdysis. And yeah. certainly you can probably be a uh, part, uh, no more corn farmers, he said, but if you grow something. Oh, no, we're still looking for cornfields. Yeah. <laughs> he can be part of the thousand farms initiative. Maybe yes. if it's something that's near and dear to your heart, um, donate to ecdysis uh, because he is 100% self-funded and he needs your help and what they're doing and uh he's doing some pretty amazing things you can hear so thank you and i hope someone listening here is going to do one thing and that made this podcast worth it didn't it yeah yep i think so all right thanks jonathan great to see you and uh we'll be in touch all right thanks a bunch Thanks for listening to this conversation today. We appreciate Jonathan and his team as they have boots on the ground working to vet these processes and systems. And what I appreciate most is his acknowledgement that the farmers are changing things right now and how they're developing these successful systems and that science can be used to help support that in ways it hasn't for a long time. It's exciting work, and we hope you'll join us on the journey of implementing soil health practices that work. Find out how we're helping growers do that by checking out our website at asn.farm. And there, you can click on links to follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, LinkedIn, and YouTube. There's a lot of great things happening and always something to learn. Thanks for listening.